Hello and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Mooncat, is Ocho. Hello. Of course, this is a podcast that talks about everything except sitcom. But we're not straying too far from the television set on this occasion. In fact, we're not straying from it at all. What are we talking about today? Initially, I had this whole idea that I was going to say, while this podcast is about 1978, it's not really a sequel to our previous one about London Weekend Television in 1968. But that's not strictly true. This is a thread that comes out of 1968. There was a point, I don't know who you were quoting, I think it might have been Michael Grade, who said that that initial burst of highbrow television, for television people, by television people, lost ITV the Saturday night audience, for a decade. Yeah, this is a comment that he made in the BBC4 documentary, The Battle for Saturday Night Television. It looked to me as if it was purely a a sort of framing device for the documentary. It was sort of a transition from the early days of LWT to a particular show that we'll be talking about in just a moment. It's not really true. I mean, just before we've started the show today, we've just been watching a clip of a show from 1972, for example. It's not as if ITV closed down on Saturday nights or anything like that, but BBC Saturday night schedules, particularly throughout the majority of the 1970s, had quite a grip on the British viewing public. They were very well laid out. Each programme, each component complemented each other. And yes, I suppose you could say that Saturday nights in the 1970s in general belonged to BBC One. So that's what this is about. 1978, there is a change on Saturday nights. Was the Generation Game the most popular Saturday night show? Well, if we're going to descend into cliche, we can call it the linchpin of the Saturday night BBC One schedule. Bruce Forsyth, when he's been interviewed on the subject previously, said that one of his concerns when he was brought in to host the Generation Game from 1971 onwards was that it was too early in the evening because it was going out around about half past six or thereabouts. And Bill Cotton explained to him that that's exactly what the show was supposed to do. It was supposed to shore up the audience for the entire evening. And then throughout the rest of the night, you would have, depending on what time of year it was and depending on what shows were running at the time, you might have had something, for example, like a, a sitcom. You might have had the two Ronnies. You'd certainly have some drama in there. You probably would have Michael Parkinson's chat show and you'd have Match of the Day. Doctor Who also would have been on before. I'm just picking a Saturday night at random, October the 14th, 1978. Now that's something I've never heard of before. 525, no Ledman's lucky numbers. That's right, yes, that's right, because he did do that around about that time, about four years before he then returned to Saturday Night Television. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, that was, I, don't, I don't think that lasted too long. But was it one or two series? Maybe that did. I've never heard of it before. 6.20, Doctor Who. 6.45, Generation Game. 7.40, All Creatures Great and Small. 8.30, Little and Large. 9 o'clock, Starsky and Hutch. 10 o'clock, Match of the Day. 11 o'clock, Parkinson. That's your Saturday night with BBC One. And it's quite easy to imagine a general audience not switching back. A little bit about the history of the Generation Game. I'm going to throw that over to you. It's a Dutch show called In Van Den Acht, I think? It is, which is translated into One of the Eight. And it is from 1969. 
The program itself was longer and was more akin to we've talked about like you know the the original three two one for example in Spain and how it's a show which has multiple sections, but within it is this game show. As the story goes, Bill Cotton showed a tape of this to Bruce Forsyth and said, if we cut out all the extra bits and pieces and just concentrate on the game show element itself, then we might have something here. And so the Generation game debuted in 1971 and it was an immediate hit and continued with Bruce Forsyth at the helm until the end of 1977. And that very famous Christmas night lineup of Generation Game Mike Yarwood and Markham and Wise, the one that gradually ended up with half the population viewing it by the end of the evening. We have an opportunity to slay one of the outrageous myths of light entertainment here. We can try, but we want to succeed. Because there's always some guy in the office, did you know? And he says something that's been debunked by Snopes five years ago. <laughs> And he won't have it. Okay, well, here's the deal about this. This is from the man himself. In his autobiography, Bruce Forsyth explains that unlike every single newspaper article you've ever read about Bruce Forsyth going from the BBC to ITV, he did not. Bruce Forsyth left the Generation Game at the end of 1977 because he was going to do a West End musical. And he was also slightly bored with the Generation game itself. He'd been doing it for seven years and wanted a bit of a change. So, off he goes to the West End. His musical is not a success and wraps up... I think it's called something... Isn't it called like the Travelling Music Show or something like that? It wraps up earlier than expected. At that point, Michael Grade of London Weekend Television sees an opportunity. And this is when Bruce Forsyth is brought in to host his own show on Saturday night on ITV. But it wasn't a straight transfer. It does fit in with that thing though that for a few years ITV did start trying to poach the BBC's Saturday night big guns. They took Dick Emery away for a bit. Bit of what? I'm not at liberty to say. The, the, <laughs> the Dick Emery show. That was a joke on... that Dick I'm sure rejected himself. <laughs> the Dick Emery shows on Thames are a little bit unusual and actually they do sort of point in a way to the background to Bruce Forsyth joining ITV because a good way of getting hold of a particular piece of talent is to play to their ego. If they are in any way frustrated with what they're doing at the BBC, for example, then if you say to them, well, you've got more talents than just what you're being allowed to do at the BBC, you could do more at ITV. Now, Dick Emery's show, he had three shows for Thames in 79 and 80. And they're a really odd mix. And honestly, there's no other way to describe them. There are sketches in there, exactly as you'd expect. But there's also long sections of Dick Emery singing. Straightforward, not comedic songs or anything like that. There's also just stuff that's really bizarre. There's like a section from a ballet in one of those shows. And the whole time you're waiting for Dick Emery to appear... You're thinking this is a skit of some description. And it isn't. It didn't go anywhere. It just, it just happens. Well, and isn't this something that brings us back again to our podcast on 1960 at London Weekend? Didn't you say? Get a bit of culture in amongst the populist stuff. Well, maybe, but now you're using all the And now you're complaining, me. you hypocrite. 
But anyway, so Bruce Forsyth, he is hosting this game show and it gives him the chance to interact with the contestants and so on, but it's not allowing Brucey to show off his talents as a showman, so to speak. And of course, that was exactly why he went off to try and do this musical, for that reason. So, when LWT make the offer to Bruce Forsyth, they're saying to him, look, okay, sure, we can take elements of the generation, can we won't have you interacting with the public because you do that really well, but you can do so much more. I hadn't finished my list of ITV BBC poachings, famously Morecambe and Wise, who are brought across and end up being stuck doing exactly what they did at the BBC, only not quite as well. They get over-rehearsed because they're doing half hours with the same rehearsal time as they would have had for an hour. Yeah, to be honest, I think that Eric Morecambe's health, I think, probably contributed to that. Because when they joined Thames in 1978, they did seek to make changes to the format. They actually dropped Bring Me Sunshine for the first couple of shows. And did a few sort of bits and pieces, experimented with a little bit of technology along the lines of what Kenny Everett had been doing that year. But then when Eric Morecambe fell ill and it was a little while before he then came back to do new shows, by that time I think that he was seeking a return to the familiar. So when he returned, Eddie Braben had come over as writer, John Admans had come over as producer, and it was very much then the safe format that they'd had at the BBC. And of course I think they did a podcast they, in itself about Marco and Wise. They did do the film of course, which of course that was a big thing at the time. They all said, Oh, they're going over to Thames to make a film. They did make a film. I, I don't mind it. I don't think it's uh, It's not by as any means bad, bad as film. people say, but we'll give that its own talk. And it's later than the other defections, but I think it's still kind of relevant and it's one we have talked about, the goodies moving to London Weekend, nineteen eighty eighty one. And you've also, of course, you've got the other person in that trio of 77 Christmas shows, Mike Yarwood, who goes over in 1982. There is that whole thing of trying to chip away at the BBC stranglehold on Saturday nights just by pinching the talent. And really, it's something we hear again and again in British television, constantly people switching networks and then fading away. The only one that's really jumping to mind right now is Des Lynham. Well, I've just been reading, actually, Des Lynham's autobiography. Thank you very much to Ray who sent me a copy of that. And that's got a really interesting piece about when he transferred from BBC to ITV and then he started to not so much struggle but he felt as if he was in a sort of straitjacket because as soon as he started speaking he's got somebody telling him to wind up because he's got a commercial break to go to. The same thing happened with Michael Parkinson of course when he transferred about 10 years ago or so. I remember people saying I think it was probably these PR people that were saying the show will be exactly the same on ITV. And I remember thinking at the time, it won't. It will either be one hour on ITV with free commercial breaks, which interrupt the flow of the interviews, or they'll seek to negate that by adding an extra 15 minutes to the programme. And that, of course, then requires the viewer to sit there for an extra 15 minutes. And that is actually what they did in the first year. And then for the rest of his time on ITV, they just shrunk it down to an hour with commercial breaks. Yeah, he courses. ran for years on ITV, but didn't have the same cachet. A more recent example, of course, would be Adrian Childs and Christine Blakely leaving the one show to go off and do Daybreak. I mean, there are success stories. It seems the bigger the splash, the bigger the hoopla around the move, the more likely it is to come to nothing. I wonder if there's also something about the timing of it, because the one big signing that ITV got that didn't turn sour 
was Anton Deck. And they had been doing Friends Like These on BBC on Saturday evenings, around about 2000. And then ITV snapped them up to present Pop Idol and all things. And because they'd only sort of been doing their stuff at the BBC and elsewhere for a few years, it wasn't as if, oh, they've suddenly peaked at the BBC and now ITV's getting them when they're past their best. Sometimes you get particular entertainers who are just ITV people, for example, like Tommy Cooper. It's just the way it works out. Just spend the majority of their career at one particular channel. Graham Norton's an interesting example because he actually, BBC tried to poach him from Channel 4. And when he asked them what he was going to be doing there, suddenly they didn't have any ideas. And they said, oh, well, we'll probably give you that commercial clip show, you know, the one that was being done by everybody at the time. It was initially Jasper Carrot, and then it was Warren McGrath and so on. And they said, well, we might give you that, and, and we'll do this and that. And so on. And he, eventually just, he just stayed. He stayed at Channel 4. And then the next time BBC came calling for him, they had a plan. They had actually had formats in mind for him, which have subsequently worked out. But it's not something that any presenter or entertainer necessarily wants to acknowledge, but so much of their success rides on the format. And when you take that presenter or entertainer out of that format and then sort of leave them adrift, and it's just their personality that's being put forward to the the viewer, as we'll see, talking about uh, a generation game right now, doesn't always work out. Meanwhile, over at the BBC, they have to replace the presenter of the generation game. They decide on Larry Grayson. But it'd be interesting to talk about what he was doing can I make this personal? I don't want to go on a journey. <laughs> You'll never get your own documentary on ITV1 these days. Yeah, well, can't shake the devil's hand and say you're only kidding. <laughs> a while ago, I bought the Sunday Night at the London Palladium DVD set, Volumes 1 and 2. And, of course, there's a lot of Bruce Forsyth in that, and I really enjoyed his hosting of the show. Previous to that, I've never really had much time for Larry Grayson. I only have vague memories of him, and even then, probably more seeing clips of him than seeing him at the time. And I'd always just seen him as kind of a one-trick pony. And on that set, there's a 70s Palladium show, when Jim Dale was the nominal host, but usually the first person you saw who did a kind of extended routine come introduction to the next act was somebody else, and one of them, it's Larry Grayson. And I was just struck by how pleasant his routine was, just how well constructed it was, his rapport with the audience. I've been wrong about Larry Grayson. I was also looking for more light entertainment because I'd run out of Morecambe and Wise and my wife was upset that we had no more Morecambe and Wise. So I picked up, again from Network DVD, the Larry Grayson at ITV set. And that gives us an idea. He seemed like somebody who was not easy to build a format around. They have... The only surviving in its original condition edition of his chat show shut that door. That's a bit of an odd beast. His conversations seem a bit insular. He's just chatting to uh, Diana Dawes is the one that sticks in my mind. I know there are other people. Uh, There is a surviving dodgy looking home video copy of one with Noel Gordon. Because Noel Gordon never seems to be far away when Larry Grayson's about. It seems like they're talking for their own benefit. And the audience is there. And also on there is his London Weekend show, which starts with an opening monologue. Then you will get a sketch, often a sketch on location. And then you will have, maybe a singer will come on. Then there'll be something like a magic trick or an acrobat. 
And at the end of the acrobat or magician's routine, Larry will have to take part. So if you have a knife thrower, Larry will have to stand against the board and have knives thrown at him. There's one where he's put on a chair and held up on a pole, that kind of routine. Backflips are being done. They try and make it somehow scripted. So the floor manager says, oh, Larry, we need some help. It sounds like I'm rambling, and I am, but it does become slightly relevant later on. Then we'll have another sketch in the studio, and an, maybe another song from another guest, and a song from Larry. There's something strange about it. At the end, he seems to be always on the verge of tears. He's just When he's winding up his show, and he's, he'll say, goodbye, and I love you all very much. I'm assuming he's sincere. He's a really square peg. So why was he chosen for the Generation game? As related by Alan Boyd, who was a producer of the Generation game at the time, in a couple of different interviews over the years, he explained that they wanted to get someone who was as unlike Brucey as possible. He didn't want a Brucey clone because that person's straight away going to have comparisons made to the real thing. There's a story I've heard about Brucey being ill one time and Roy Castle presenting the Generation game and doing very well for himself. He did, and funnily enough, history repeated itself 20 years later when Brucey missed one of the 90s Generation games and his place was taken by Jim Davidson, who was hosting Big Break at the time. And of course, he then became the host one year later. It's interesting that Roy Castle didn't get that gig. I wonder if... Do we know for sure that he might have been offered it? And No, no, I'm I can't I'm just wondering if he wasn't offered it or if he was offered it and turned it down. Okay, here is a very odd comparison between Roy Castle and Larry Grayson. And it's going to sound bizarre when I come out of it, but I think it sort of fits in a little bit with what you were just saying there, doesn't it? So you want somebody who's opposite to Bruce Forsyth. And Bruce is ultra-confident and is not put into a position where he has to do any of the games, for example. So he's not put in a position where he could potentially fail, get egg in his face. Now, Michael Hurl once was asked about particular entertainers and comedians that he liked. And in reference to Roy Castle, he said the problem with Roy Castle was that he was eminently talented, <laughs> legitimately talented at many, many different things, was a bit of the sort of Sammy Davis Jr. about him. But he didn't have any sex appeal with the audience. Now, I'm not saying that Larry Grayson was somebody who exuded massive sex appeal, but like you said there just now about the way that he closes his shows, he's somebody that the audience empathises with and somebody that the audience really feels for. And I suspect that if you had Roy Castle or any other straightforward presenter coming in, I'm not saying that Roy Castle was a straightforward presenter, but you know what I mean, somebody coming into the show to present the Generation game, I don't know if they would get over as well with the audience. And they'd probably be more likely to have comparisons drawn towards Bruce Forsyth. Whereas Larry Grayson is somebody that you can't help but root for. And given that supposedly the BBC was the underdog in this, with Bruce Eco on TV, and he's the one that's got the money behind him, and he's got all the big-name stars, and he's got damn near two hours of the evening, and what have you. You think this is David and Goliath? Yes, it's a very, very smart move putting Larry Grayson in there, because he's somebody that the audience will be rooting for. Yeah, I just had an image in my head right now of the contestants do their challenges, mess up a little, then they say, hey, let's let Roy have a go. Yes, go on, have a go, Roy, and Roy doing really well. Roy being the Paul from Ever Decreasing Circles. 
<laughs> yes. That's the one thing you cannot have at all. The host showing up the contestants. And of course, that's... I mean, Alan Boyd actually says in an interview in a Channel 4 documentary from, I think, 2004, he's absolutely open about this and says that Larry Grayson, the fact that he was playing the games, it was designed for him to fail. They didn't want him to do well. The whole point of it was that he would do the games badly, but in his own way, and get laughs out of it. It's funny, actually, that you've got a sort of role reversal going on here as well, because we watched a couple of Bruce Forsyth Generation games oh, ahead of this. And I Brucey... better explain that. <sighs> My mum doesn't like Bruce Forsyth. I thought, how can you not like Bruce Forsyth? He's Bruce Forsyth. He's the only Bruce Forsyth there's ever been. I have to say, watching those two Generation games, I started to lose patience with him. Do you know what the worst one was? The Christmas Cracker game. So these people... The contestants have to make Christmas crackers. And a woman comes on. I mean, talk about design to fail. Obviously, a lot of the games are designed for the contestants to struggle with, if not make a complete mess of. So part of this process is a metal cylinder. You get a flat sheet of, I think it's crepe paper. Christmas crackers used to be made of crepe paper. It's only later that they started using shiny cardboard. You put some paste on it, it's all glued together. You roll it around the metal cylinder so that it will glue into a cylindrical shape. You pull out the metal cylinder, you put the stuff in, and you twist the ends with a special end-twisting garrote of some kind. And what happens is two people end up gluing the cylinders into the cracker. And Brucey really gets peevish about this. I mean, one guy's sitting there, he's made a fool of himself, he's glued his cylinder into his cracker, and Bruce just rips it apart in front of him. That to me is like a Fanny Craddock moment when she was on that TV show and that woman had come on to show off the menu she was working on and Fanny started pretending to throw up. Well, I mean, she started bulging her cheeks like she didn't like go, ah, oh, brambles, oh. I lost all sympathy with Bruce. I've said this before and I can't remember on what show I said it on. You know, Nosmo Claphanger in Monty Python. Sometimes on those Palladium shows, Brucey comes across like a real-life Nosmo Claphanger. And it must have been quite a revelation in the 50s. Because you have nice, smooth-talking Michael Miles on one show and obsequious Huey Green on another. A host who pushes the contestants around would be quite shocking in some ways, I think, to a deferential society. But on the Generation game, he starts to come across like a bully. I know there was that thing that there was a special Bruce camera. The camera that was always going to have a mid or close-up on him so he could look into it and roll his eyes about what an idiot this person was. But after a while, it gets a bit unpleasant. To the extent that at one point, he'd spoken to the expert who was a nice, softly spoken, shy little person. And I was expecting him to do his big eye roll at that. It's a particular skill, and all the people have mentioned it before, there's a particular skill that Bruce Forsyth has, that he's got that ability to be able to sort of manhandle contestants and members of the public, and no yet they don't get upset on this, But I'm sure I've heard something about he's actually quite different to them when the camera's off. So he he's so nice to them that he can get away with a lot more when the cameras are on. But yes, Larry Grayson is the opposite of that. I'm wondering if this whole idea of the host takes part in the games, was that something they were already planning, or is that something that they decide upon once they have 
Larry in place because, as I said, Larry Grayson's London Weekend show, you have a magic act or an acrobat and then Larry has to take part and he doesn't fail. He he doesn't get a knife stuck in him. But it's all about how flustered he is and how nervous he is and how obviously stage-frightened he is. So I'm wondering if that was carried over from his old show. I suspect this is probably going to be something where it's a sort of domino effect. Once you've decided that you want an anti-Brucey, so to speak, then I suspect all those kind of elements then follow on. Because once you've got somebody who's very different, then you can say, well, you know, there's this aspect of the personality and, and they've done this in previous shows and so we can incorporate all of now, those different there's things. there's an interesting bit. I haven't so, written many notes. We, we watched some Generation games, but they didn't really have anything specific to note about them, just more of a general air. There's one bit I've written down. There's one game where they have to stuff a couch cushion and one of the women makes a bit of a mess of it and Larry makes fun of her. Look at that. You're trying to tell me something. And then just before he moves on to the next contestant, he says, well, you tried anyway, sweetheart. That is a radical change. Yes. Hostesses. I'm going to say something which is potentially controversial. No. It's not that bad, really. But I don't quite get Anthea Redfern. It's not that I don't like Anthea Redfern, it's that I don't quite get her. Does that make sense? In the Bruce Forsyth Generation games that we saw, okay, obviously Bruce's dominant personality and what have you, he's running the show, so I don't expect Anthea Redfern to have, you know, lots and lots to do on the show, but I mean, just really basic things like, for example, when she's bringing on the contestants, She's reading their names from a card, as if it's the first time she's ever seen those names. There's something that I'm missing, and perhaps it's the fact that you know I wasn't watching it at the time or whatever it was, but I don't quite understand it. You yourself said, uh, because we're watching some Golden Shot episodes recently, and Anne Aston has this reputation as a dissy blonde who's always getting things wrong. She's nothing of the sort. She's actually, in sort of the Charlie Williams shows, she's actually running the show, keeping everything together. I need to know more about Anthea Redfern. I need to know what her history is because she seems stuck between a rock and a hard-boiled egg. She trained as a dancer and went on to work as a model in Paris and England. She was then working in a club in Park Lane. She became Miss London in 1970. She met Bruce Forsyth for a Miss Lovely Legs competition. Anthea Why was Bruce entering a Miss Lovely Legs competition? <laughs> well, he does have lovely legs, let's be honest. He can tap dance with them. Anthea auditioned against 52 other applicants and they started presenting the Generation game together. And eventually, Brucey and Anthea were married on Christmas Eve 1973. So here's what I think is happening. Bruce obviously wants to push her forward, give her more of a role in the show. But at the same time, Bruce's personality is quite overpowering. At no point is control of the show ever going to fall to Anthea, by design or by accident. So occasionally she's trying to demonstrate her personality. She's not just coming on and pointing at the prizes, but then just by the nature of Bruce Forsyth's stage persona, the attention's always going to go back to Bruce. Now I think this is possibly different in the revived Generation game in, was it the late 80s? The Revived Generation game began in 1990. Because Bruce has mellowed a bit. Things are a bit different, and I can't remember her. Rosemary, Rosemary Ford? Rosemary Ford, yes. Yes. So I think that's the thing. 
she's stuck between being an actual hostess, co-hosting or secondary hosting and pointing at the prizes and neither's happening. So we're not getting her full personality. I think under different circumstances, you would see what the deal was about Anthea. So again, when we go to Isla Sinclair, Isla Sinclair is an anti-Anthea. Yes, and she's much more, I suppose you'd say, girl next door. They're going for a change in emphasis. And of course, the other thing is, is because Larry does give the impression, I don't know how true it is, but Larry does give the impression of maybe losing control of the game. There are times when he seems to definitely throw across to Isla, please catch this. And yet he remains completely effective as a host himself. Here's a thing I thought as well about Larry. Watching it, you have a host who is allowed to flirt with the men. <laughs> and that guy comes on and goes, oh, oh, you look good in blue. You can wear blue. John Inman once said that he was talking about camp. I bought a bottle of that once in Morrison's. It's a bit like putting a spoonful of maple syrup in your coffee. I'll have some of that. Anyway, no, John Inman was talking about camp performers and trying to define what camp really was. And he said that he found Bruce Forsyth very camp and added he'll kill me for saying it. I know exactly what he means because Bruce Forsyth certainly, not not in a nasty way, but he wouldn't want to give the impression that he was anything other than strictly one-way traffic, so to speak. What? Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> no, I don't know what you mean. I was looking Excuse for an expression. Me? I was looking for an expression to use. I couldn't think of one, so I just made one up. <laughs> <laughs> there is such a thing as macho camp. The, the thing is, Brucey is very, very camp, isn't he? He really is. And that opening of Big Night, when he says, "Oh, but I'm so thrilled," because that could have just easily been a Larry Grayson line. It's showbiz. That's the thing. It's it's partially that show business quality. So yeah, Isla has a more active role in the proceedings. Isla is holding the show together. Not in as much as you think that Larry Grayson is going to cause it to just fall apart at the seams. But he's got his strengths and she's bringing her strengths. It's much more of a double act really, isn't it? Yeah. By the way, wasn't the Dutch version presented by a woman? It was. That's your mainland European social democracies for you. Well, of course, after the initial host of Un Dos Tres, it was a female presenter. Was it oh, not yes, for a long yeah. time? So, Bruce Forsyth's Big Night. That's what happens over at London Weekend. We've watched the first show because it's available on YouTube. Maybe might have vanished by the time you hear this. Let's hope not. I mean, we talked about this last year when we did Game Show Club and we talked about 321. The European tendency for a big Saturday night show that had a little bit of everything in. This is the attempt to do a British version and it didn't work. Brucey's actually talked in interviews subsequently about that very fact that this is something that happens in all countries. I remember when we had the international version of TVE. Spain on Sky about 10 years ago they used to carry the Saturday night show and it would start about 8 o'clock in the evening go on to about 11 and I was quite intrigued by this and thought wow this is quite something and I actually really like that idea I really like the idea of that all evening show and actually looking back at some of the newspaper clippings from this time 
it's really interesting the comparisons that are being drawn by people within London Weekend. The obvious comparison to draw is, at that time, something like Swap Shop, because that was three-hour show, or slightly less on occasion, and that had all of its sort of component parts and what have you. There is actually a point, after Big Night has finished, when there is discussion about a show called World of Television that's supposedly being earmarked for Saturday evenings, and Noel Edmonds is a potential host for this show. But the comparisons that the executives are drawing is not with children's program on a Saturday morning, but it's more with the Saturday sport compendiums. And that's where this name World of Television comes from, derived from World of Sport. It does seem that this was a determined effort that this kind of long-form program was going to exist. The difference, if you're going to draw a comparison between World of Sport and Big Night, is that even in the very TV times in which Big Night is launched, and they're really pushing the publicity for this and making a big deal about this, World of Sport has an advertised menu. It's in the TV Times, it's in the newspapers, Dickie Davis will tell you about it at the beginning of the show, that here are the component parts and here's when they're on. So it's not as if he's always sort of imploring you to come back after each and every commercial break to find out what on earth they're going to come up with next over the course of five hours. It's just not going to happen. But we don't have that in Big Night. We don't have a list of individual elements with times to say when they're going to be on. And actually, it would have been easier to do that with Big Night than World of Sport or Swap Shop because, of course, they're live programmes, whereas Big Night isn't. So one of the little ironies of this is the show that it displaces from its slot. Wasn't 321 in that slot before? Yes, it was. 321 began in the summer of 78 and it was on Saturday nights at first and then moved to Friday nights to make way for Big Night. It's interesting, having watched some golden shots, that that keeps breaking off for musical guests and comedians in a way that I've never seen another British game show do. I suppose if you want to point out to the breakthrough of Bruce Forsyth, that was on Sunday night at the London Palladium, a variety show with a game show in the middle of it, which again seems a bit peculiar to me. But the thing about all of these shows and the Generation Game is the length. They're all around about one hour. And that appears to be the sort of accepted length for these shows in the UK. Of course, Big Night is breaking this. Big Night isn't going like the full three hours or anything like that. It's one hour fifty. A peculiar length. It starts halfway through with the Generation game. starts at 6.45. So they're already almost asking for trouble because either you have to desert the Generation game partway through or you have to hope that your kids like The Incredible Hulk more than they like Doctor Who. This is the London weekend schedule for that Saturday. After the sport, we have news and cartoon time. Oh, you never know what you're going to get with cartoon time. Well, at least it's ITV. There's a better chance it'd be my Warner Brothers. Whereas if BBC One, it might be Sheriff Hoot Clute or Tijuana Toad. Pui! <laughs> 5.30, Happy Days. 6 o'clock, Mind Your Language. 6.30, The Incredible Hulk. That's a depressing show. Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> That's a depressing show, of course. 7.25, Bruce Forsyth's Big Night Out. Was it earlier in the year? That's the enemy at the door slot. <laughs> yeah. 9.15, The Professionals, 10.15 News, 10.30, Deliverance. 
<laughs> That's a good film. It's a good film. So, right, let's do the post-mortem on this beast. Was it an immediate flop, or did it just tail off? According to the story that's often told, and Brian Tesler was quite often one of the people who would explain this in interviews, the first show did really well. The first show did 14 million viewers, and the assumption at London Weekend was that they had a hit on their hands. It was only when the ratings for the second and third shows came in that they realised they had a problem. Brian Tesler said during interview in 2002, he said the ratings for the first one were 14 million. The second one, they were down by about a third. The third one, they were down by half from the initial program. I don't know if the audience was deserting the show, but there is a suggestion in all of this that the audience was willing to give the show a chance, but that people were frustrated by the long-form format, that people eventually would just get bored of it. And this is something that we were spotting when we were watching the Generation Game, for example. The Generation Game is a format, and it has a structure. Whereas watching Big Night, it's like, okay, here's a bit, and then here's a bit of this, and here's a bit of that, and so on and so on. Well, I've got a scene-by-scene breakdown. I think, as much as I don't like to get too recappy on these things, I think we should pick this bit by bit. But first, I just want to tread on the toes of our fellow Podnose podcast, Talk Show Talk Show, presented by George Grimwood. Because I was reading something about the late night talk shows, which are in dire trouble apparently now. It's known that on a late night talk show, you are going to end with fewer viewers than you started out with. And the question is, how few do you shed? But it's known that every time you go to a break, people will switch off. Some people will switch off after the monologue. That's just how it goes. And television can cope with that because it's just a matter of making sure that the last thing these people switch off on is you. It's okay not to have as many people at 12.30 as you do at 11.30. It's okay to have lost a big chunk of those by 1.30. And as much as the talk shows might keep saying, stay tuned for, stay tuned for, it is actually a format that's in some ways designed to be turned off on. In a way that I think like Parkinson's chat show wasn't. I mean, no ad breaks for a start, but also his was almost a continuous developing thing. More guests would come on and start talking to each other. Bruce Forsyth's Big Night feels like something to be turned off on. As you say, it's bitty. And the big thing is that it doesn't have a payoff. There are competitions in it, but they are individual to themselves. The guy you see entering the joke contest is going to be gone in three minutes. It's not a matter of whether he can keep going through the rest of the night. And that's the thing about 321. Here's a quiz, here's a game, here's a sketch, let's break off for some comedy. When you come back from the sketch, it's the same couple, or the same two couples. Two of these people are going home with something of value, even if it's a new dustbin. What are they going to get? What are they going to turn down? It is not, here's a sketch, here's a new couple, here's a song, here's a new couple. It starts off weird. I think some people have said that it it almost starts off trying to sell itself like the second coming because it starts off with a hymn. Okay, it's a disco-fied hymn, but it starts with, well, the name of his dance is 32 Feet, doing a disco version of Come and Go With Me to My Father's House, which already feels strange. So the title's end, the show proper begins, and 
first Bruce demonstrates his singing voice and sings Let's Get the Network Together, which is great. It is a classic song. It should be available to purchase on iTunes. Really. It is a bit strange that he explains networking like that's a novel idea. Well, no, this is the thing because it I is... know there was a greater amount of division between the regional franchises and you stood more of a chance of watching something half an hour later or on a different night from the people next to you. But Coronation Street existed. Yes, but I think this is something specific to Saturday nights because I think that we've looked at this before. When we've gone through the TV Times listings throughout the 1970s, it's Saturday. just that he makes it sound like it's the first time ever. Oh, sure, yeah, but as far as Saturday Night is concerned, it does appear to be something of a novelty. So he sings this song, Anthea comes on and shows her dress made of 19th century lace, and she does a sexy bit. I don't know, she sort of winks at the camera and struts around. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got YouTube, people. <laughs> I've made that sound droll and... <laughs> Again, we've got that bit, though, trying to get her personality out there in front of the cameras, but it, it isn't really allowed to lead anywhere. And then we have the jokes. And this is where the problem begins. Three men come on, tell jokes against a bar, which isn't really a bar, it's just some... There's no alcohol inside. It could be a gym horse or anything. It doesn't look like a bar. Yeah, it should have optics and it should be a nice wooden thing. They just bring out this metal thing that they can lean on. Bruce interrupts the guys while they're trying to tell their jokes, which makes a nice little 30-second joke last three minutes. Well, exaggerate, but it stretches these jokes out beyond their natural lifespans. And somebody wins the joke competition, and that's it. They're gone. We'll never see them again. We have a bit from Rod Hull and his emu. He does exactly what you'd expect. And then the disco dancers. What happened with disco? It became an unstoppable cultural force that you just had to acknowledge, didn't it? Well, it did. I am a big fan of the disco era, and I like the fact that so much in the way of music and the sort of theme tunes and what have you, they're all sort of disco-fied, and, and everybody was getting in the act. Max Bygraves, Ethel Merriman, Kenny Lynch, they're all at it. And it came to the fore around about 77, 78, and it stayed there till about 83. And it had its natural lifespan and disco dancing. Was it killed off by Queen? And their Hot Space album. No, no, okay. that's a myth that you've just invented. The thing about the old disco is that disco lent itself to television because disco dancing is something that you could televise. Whereas, for example, punk, participants there weren't necessarily too endearing on television. And say, I don't know, New Romantics, do you have people dress up like Gary Newman and just stand there? Perhaps in front of a rolling keyboard or something like that? That those Gary Newman was electro pop, not new romantic. New romantic should be great for TV. They got great visual appeal with their big frilly puffy shirt. I mean, puff, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, billowing pirate shirts. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so certain musical genres have aspects of them which lend themselves very well to visuals. Not in this like, case, it doesn't. That's the thing. Bruce says, right, here are the disco dancing contestants and they're going off to a disco dancing championship. And we see a bunch of people dancing and then we cut back to Bruce and it's we don't even have a winner announced. It's not like the disco dancing championships, some of which are on YouTube with Simon Bitt and David Hamilton. God, there's some good stuff going on there, isn't there? But also, the other thing I've got to say as well, of course, is that all of this is tapping into the success of Saturday Night Fever. Uh, in the same way that you've suddenly got a ton of 
Space Age references because of the success of Star Wars in the same year. So they seem to have a sort of dual impact as far as a lot of popular culture for a few years. But it's just a bunch of people dancing and nobody gets singled out. It's not like a case of you can pick on one and say, right, I want them to win. We just cut back to Bruce. So we've got the problem magnified. I know he says we're going to see them again next week or something along those lines. It's still just a couple of minutes that seem wasted because it's not even a routine. It's not like, right, here are 32 feet. They're going to do a routine and it's going to be well choreographed. This is like, right, here are a bunch of people dancing for themselves, by themselves. And our camera just happens to be there. And there they were. So it's even beyond that joke telling thing. It's not just a matter of here they come, one of them wins, off they go. Here they come, off they go. After that, we have sex noise pong. That's all it is. <laughs> it's the game. Pong. When was that played on 321? Was that already in place on? No, that was later. That was around about okay. 81 that they introduced that. But it's that thing of video games. They're a new thing. Let's have a video game. But don't give them joysticks. One person operates their pong bet by going ooh, and the other one operates it by going ah. And the third one operates it by going Paul McGrath. <laughs> it doesn't make for good television. For a start, they can't even play the game that well. They're being asked to play a game with an entirely new system of game playing. So it's not even like it's going to be particularly tense. It's really down to chance. You might as well just flip a coin. It really is, isn't uh, you it? Would... Not... Oh, and also it's for charity. Now, this is a bit of a personal hang-up. I don't like game shows where the people are winning things for charity because it wasn't just like they were winning money for charity. They were winning things. Is it one person wanted a colour television, maybe for a care home, and the other person was trying to win a stretcher, was it? That's right, yeah. And the thought is, if this person loses, that stretcher gets sent back. It just feels... Here, here's that thing that would make people's lives better. Ha <laughs> you can't have it because you're rubbish at Pong. It just doesn't sit right with me. And the woman who loses and doesn't get the colour television does at least get £40. So it's not like she goes away empty-handed, but uh, my mood's already soured. And is it also slightly suspicious that she says she's trying to win the colour television? The fellow says he's trying to win a stretcher. The stretcher's there in the studio, but the colour television isn't. And now for what I think is the Nadia of the show, the fancy dress competition. This does not feel like expensive London weekend Saturday night entertainment. This feels like something that's just been dragged out of a village fit and put into a television studio. I think I described it slightly differently, didn't I? I described it as something... I don't know, because I've never been to one of these events, but I described it as something which would feature in a party that would be the subject of an expose in the news of the world. You know, you just get that impression about it. It's like, you know, fancy dress, eh? Oh, yeah. Batteries, eh? People dressed as the post office tower. Not the specifics, but it's just like, you know, it's it's got a sleazy sort of element to it. You know, it's just... I can't agree. You're saying all fancy dress is sleazy? Yes. <laughs> It's like, okay, you've seen the like lands, haven't you? Oh, is that it, is it? Yeah, so there you go. That's you've planted seen... the idea in your mind, that the only reason anybody would dress up as a pirate is to commit adultery. Exactly. Well, that, well they're all at it, aren't they? And on Christmas Eve, I ask you. So there's these five, is it five, I don't know, contestants come on. These women come on and they've all got these daft costumes and they're all doing stupid shit. 
And the, the thing is, that... they're not really doing anything. They just come on and stand there, and then Brucey just makes weak puns about their costumes. So, so one woman is dressed in newspapers, and she's there as Miss Fleet Street. And then he says, "Pretend to be a news vendor and shout something." There's something else about this which is a bit odd. Joke folk, or joke bulk, as I prefer to call it, that has at least got some sort of structure. It's like, okay, three people come on to tell jokes, one of them wins. Now, this raises more questions than answers. So who designed the costumes, for a start? We never find that out. Was it the women themselves who designed these costumes? We don't know. Why did they choose those particular costumes? Why did they choose those particular designs? We don't know that either. There's something missing about this. It's almost like something that you get on Blue Peter. Do you know what I mean? It'd be like, you know, oh, look, here's somebody and they've made this costume and here's what they've made it out of and here's why they did this and all this kind of stuff. This is all the information that's completely missing from this. But so it's like just... they don't even do a party piece. The nearest thing you get to somebody doing a party piece is somebody doing an impression of two characters in Upstairs Downstairs. But the other people just do something. Shout. Pour a cup of tea out of your head-mounted teapot. Pretend you're making an announcement in a train station and the the last woman is the Dowager Marchioness of Trumpton, isn't she? There's just a brief mention about how she's titled and then, oh, hmm. And then Brucey gets aggressive. At what point does Brucey say, what's he say? He's going to fill somebody in? Or... No, he, he says, yeah, I know, yeah, that's right, because they're, they're marking the contestants and joke folk and he says, don't mark me, I'll mark you for life. It does come across as a bit overly aggressive. This might sound strange, but I'm going to suggest that there is a link between this and, I don't know, Big Brother. There's a certain point at which contestants, like contestants on the Generation game, for example, playing the games and all that kind of stuff, that's amusing and it's funny because you can sort of imagine yourself in the same position and so on. There's a point at which that suddenly, almost invisibly, tips over into this person is seeking attention. And then it's, then it's uncomfortable, sweaty palm time. It's not enjoyable at all. And this is something which unfortunately infects a lot of game shows these days as you get contestants who are actually chosen from casting agencies rather than people just writing in. And this in a way is sort of the beginning of this. This is like, we've got some people on here and they're just there to entertain the audience. They're not professional entertainers. They're not going to do anything, but they're here for your entertainment. And I think that there's a little bit there where you think, okay, before you know it, you're moving towards a game for a laugh. And then you're, what do you say, keynotes? Keynotes, yes. I just remembered that where they'd show the contestants and the contestants would be like doing thumbs up and waving, waving like in a, ah, look, it's me kind of way. Rather than, hello, I am going to be on your television for the next 25 minutes. Right. Do you know actually when everything went wrong in the universe? It was when the opening of Family Fortunes, when they get the family to dance to the music at the beginning. That's when it all happened. That was the tipping point. There's always talk of bringing back the Generation game. Do you think that would be a problem? People would start messing up quite deliberately. I think if there was any possibility of them bringing back the Generation game, and let's face it, because there aren't any original ideas anymore, so they're bound to eventually, aren't they? They were talking about bringing it back for Miranda Hart recently, and then she denied it and said that that wasn't the case. If they were going to do it, then I think they'd have to make sure that they didn't end up with casting agency 
people because that would be bloody horrible. And I think, to be perfectly honest, it would die in its arse. The whole pleasure in the generation game is just watching people having a go. You know, they're letting their hair down. That's the thing. They're not the office comedians. They're just normal people and they're letting their hair down for an hour or so. And just Are there trying... any normal people left? Everybody's an office comedian. No, I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. I our think air that... is unfit to breathe, our food is unfit to eat. The generation game with Howard Beale. Given the way that television's been over the last sort of fifteen years or so, it's very easy to think that and think, oh god, everyone's now just waiting for their literally waiting for the fifteen minutes of fame. No, I come this is sometimes though from my interactions with people. Conversations are getting more difficult to have because somebody's trying to go and top you with something that's really only just a variation on that's what she said, as the actress said to the bishop. Having it all laid out like this, seeing it scene by scene, I am now seeing a bigger problem. And something I said, it's not just the format, it's the way the format's balanced. Because now we enter the more professional part of the evening. We've had Emu earlier on. But things have been very much balanced in the people show style. Jock tellers, disco dancers, pong players, fancy dressers. Now it's the pyramid game, which of course has members of the public like any game show, but it is a game presented by a host with professional people helping the contestants. It's done on a separate game show set. It's all perfectly normal. It's recognisable. Presenter is Steve Jones because Brucey is more than a game show host, so he's not doing the strictly game show part of his own show and our celebrity guests are russell harty and lisa goddard you can see that there is a format there in its own little 10 minute slot there is a format and of course that's one of the elements that did develop into a full-on show which lasted i think over a decade ultimately between lwt and tbs then we get the gloms and now i come to say it, it seems an even more bizarre choice so we effectively have our Saturday night sitcom. It's too long to be a sketch, it's too short to be a full-blown thing, and it's a strange throwback to the 50s. And that's complemented, so to speak, in the following week by a revival of The Worker with Charlie Drake. Shall we just quickly explain about The Glums? We'll be quick so it's not too patronising. Uh, the Glums was a segment on a 1950s radio sketch show called Take It From Here. It's written by Frank Muir and Dennis Norden. And it was partially done as a reaction against nice, wholesome American sitcom and American soap opera and American drama families. It was the idea of let's have a story about a really unbearably grim, stupid British family. And it looks to be set in period. It's a nice segment. And again, it's another one that span off into its own thing. It does have a bizarre bit of time wasting. It, ha it starts off in a bar, setting it up as a flashback for no reason. This is our first sight of television glums and it's explaining the meeting between Ron Glum, played by Ian Lavender, son of Pa Glum, played by Jimmy Edwards, and Ron meets Ethel, the love of his life, played by the fantastic and not talked about enough Patricia Brake. And I'm going to assume, if anybody knows better, let me know, that this was a segment that came sometime into the life of Take It From Here and the Glums. Because it starts with Parglum down the pub, flashing back to the time that Ron met Eth. And there's absolutely no reason for that. It's a very minor thing to pick up on. And it seems nitpicking, but I just wanted to highlight it. And then we have Bette Midler 
and it turns into a variety chat show. If you remember Bruce Forsyth's guest night in the 90s, it's a bit like that because we have a song and we have some rather forced, humorous chat. You got the feeling that somebody had worked on Bet's patter to make it more British. I did get that impression because there were script associates such as Barry Cryer and Colin Bostock Smith and others who were credited in this show. And we have Marshall and Renwick in there as well. That's right, yes. Yes, indeed, yeah. I did wonder if perhaps somebody sort of given her a few sort of topical local geographical references and so on. But they did say that, Brucey said earlier on that she was performing in London, so it might be that she already had some UK-centric material to hand anyway. But this went I on, I kind of want it? to come back to Larry Grayson now. You know how I said that watching Shut That Door occasionally got the feeling that Larry and his guest were talking for themselves? And it was odd, but in some ways it was effective because it was watching two people having a friendly chat. This is a weird inverse of that. They are very, very much talking for the audience, but it comes across a bit artificial. I've heard descriptions of Jerry Lewis's chat show. Did he only have one? That's a question to be answered by talk show, talk show. But there was some show he had where... Jerry would talk about how amazing his guest was and how, oh, just what a wonderful person. And the guest would come out and talk about Jerry, about Jerry, or the greatest guy who ever lived. And Jerry's sidekick, I think it was Charlie Callis. Charlie, isn't this guy amazing? Yes, yes, Jerry, this guy is amazing. And you're amazing too. Thank you, Charlie. You're great. Oh, love you. There's a slight element of that. Yes, I mean, Bet does silly little impressions. I say silly little, you know, that I mean, deliberately... These are little frothy bits of business and the kind of thing that is very helpful in keeping an atmosphere going, but it's too on. We're not getting, look, just do your bit, that's fine. And we're not getting the Parkinson thing where we're kind of lifting up the top of the head to have a look inside, and we're not getting the nice frothy Larry Grayson, oh, I haven't seen you for ages now, oh, we watched that film, who was in it? We're not getting that thing, It's it falls down again between a number of stools. And that's the end. Bet is the last thing on it. And of course she's big star and flagged at the beginning, but it just feels a really badly balanced couple of hours. I think they would have been better off, because this is pre-recorded. So I don't think there are that many staging considerations that have to go into it. For a start, it strikes me the better that after the introduction, the first thing we see is a song from Bet Midler, and then she'll be back again at the end of the show and stagger the people segments with professional segments. Because we have the disco dancers, the pong, and the fancy dress one after the other. Put the gloms between the disco dancers and the pong. Just do something to change the balance of the show. I'm not sure. Do you think it would still have gone south because it's a two-hour commitment? It's bitty. It doesn't pay off. What do you think? This might sound like a strange comparison, but I think it's worthwhile exploring telephones. It's not as if they try to stage Children in Need in 1980 and it didn't work and they never tried it again. So the British public will watch a programme which is oversized and long form and, and perhaps you know has segments that aren't necessarily clearly advertised as far as like the timings and so on are concerned. But I think that what's really missing from this is the payoff. In some ways, do you think this is a victim of 3 one being on the same network? 
Because in a way, if if this was a big budget three two one, imagine a big budget three two one which had Bruce Lee at the helm and had pairings of contestants who were whittled down along the lines of most game shows, but instead of say Billy Dainty coming on and doing his stuff for a few minutes, Bette Midler was one of the guests on the show. That possibly could have worked. But the problem with Big Night is that there is no format. It's just a series of individual little segments. And it did need some sort of cohesion. Bruce is almost reduced to a continuity announcer in places. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, okay, imagine that. Would that have worked? A big budget 3-2-1 style show with Bruce well, the ordinary the budget 3-2-1 show ended up back in that slot, didn't it? And continuing until the late 80s. So, so that was it. Larry won. Brucey wasn't dried up and blown away, ended up going on to play your cards right. And now you know the rest of the story. Now, it's interesting that when he comes back, he's in a very tightly formatted game show. And one, actually, which strangely gives him less room for showing off his talents than the Generation game did, let alone Big Night. It's half an hour and... There's a game to be played, and there really isn't any scope for doing anything differently. There's no scope for suddenly throwing in an extra round or a little bit of improv or whatever it may be. I think that's part of the reason why Bruce Forsyth now doesn't really like being called you know, the great game show host, and does say that he sort of regrets the fact that he did that many game shows. Here's a strange thing. Here's a comparison of something that Bruce did later on. The Price is Right. All the games on The Price is Right are different. And they don't really... You couldn't compare one with another as far as a contest of skills is concerned. It's oranges and apples. But all the people who have been on those individual games then go on to the showdown at the end. Perhaps that could have been something that was in Big Night. So the winner of Joke Folk and the winner of the Fancy Dress and the winner of the Teletennis and so on, they all come together at the end and there's a reason for them to be there. And that could be the conclusion of the show. Larry's Generation game continues for another four years. And the BBC's dominance on Saturday nights continues until that point and it's not until we get shows such as Game for a Laugh and Beatles About they spun off from that and so on the ITV actually starts to get a real proper foothold on Saturday evenings but even, well I was going to say even now, I suppose with the X Factor, yes, ITV does hit the biggest ratings on Saturday nights these days but I don't think that ITV's ever really come up with a Saturday evening schedule to rival the classic BBC schedule but now I'm just suddenly thinking a show full of little bits none of which continue on past their allotted slots, none of which pay off at the end. That's the Late Late Breakfast Show and Noel's House Party. Well, indeed, yes. Okay, I'm going to come up with something outrageous now. Tell me if this is complete and absolute piffle, okay? Brucey's Big Night has, with the inclusion of things like the Glums and the Worker and so on, it has a little bit of a slant towards an older audience. Now, I was drawn comparisons earlier on with things like Swap Shop and so on. Do you think that a format such as Big Night would work in 2015, given that the audience for that show in 2015 have all grown up with Swap Shop and Saturday Superstore and going live and live and kicking, whereas the audience for Big Night hadn't? 
yes, it might be worth a try. It might be worth a try trying to do the full three hours. I mean, X Factor itself is quite often two hours long in its early editions, and the same goes for Strictly Come Dancing as well. So what in the wide Noel Edmonds world of television are we talking about next time on Jaffa Cakes for Proust? Presuming everything goes according to plan, because it's a bit more up in the air on a monthly schedule than a weekly one. Next time, we'll be joined by G. Baker from Sitcom Lover's Corner and, of course, the Sitcom Club itself. We're going to be talking about nostalgia, specifically the differences and the similarities between Generation X nostalgia and Millennial nostalgia. And we're also going to be taking a quick look at hauntology. And are today's young people able to relate to it? In the meantime, you can find all manner of listening available on podnose.com. And there you'll find all the previous episodes of Sitcom Club, of course. But also there's all manner of other podcasts on all manner of other topics. So do delve in. And, of course, the Sitcom Club itself will be back in the autumn. Keep watching the Twitter feed for news of my guest appearance on the Just One More Thing podcast, all about Columbo. And you can listen to their other podcasts that don't have me on them by going to thecitydesk.net forward slash Just One More Thing. Also in the world of non-sitcom club Jaffa Kicks podcasts, we've had comments and suggestions before from Ian Hepburn. I don't know if any of you remember the Thumbcast. Well, he's launching a new pop culture podcast called From the Sublime, and you can find out what you need to know by going to fromthesublime.com. The pilot is up with stuff about Tremors, Mr. Robot, and the grim and gritty tendency in superhero things. In the meantime, Ocho, you've been Ocho. Indeed. Goodbye. I've been Mooncat, and this has been Jaffa Cakes for Proust.